0: This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, Prince Wine Store and the Bendigo Art Gallery, presenting Elvis direct from Graceland. Created in partnership with Graceland, this Australian exclusive exhibition explores the life and style of Elvis Presley. On now until July 17. Tickets from bendigoartgallery.com.au.
1: Josh Frydenberg's being named as a potential contender for Gillian McLaughlin's job. I don't think it will happen. Corrie, the big story over the last week has been star players behaving really badly. Not a good week for the image of the AFL. And it's
0: difficult sometimes. I know that, that often mental health and drugs are completely and utterly connected. Of course I understand that. But I wonder what your thoughts are about punishments and
1: penalties. Well, the drug code is not a punitive code. It's about players' welfare, and it's about looking after their health. I know people don't like illicit substances. I would hate it if someone close to me was videoed the way Bailey Smith was, but I think you need to understand that this is so prevalent. He's only doing damage to himself. He doesn't deserve a two-year ban.
0: Donald Trump continued on his merry way, did not do anything to desist from his repeatedly lying to the country. He encouraged the mob led by extremists to march on the Capitol building. He made no effort to halt the violence, but they are really putting forward a powerful criminal case against the former president, way more powerful than I ever imagined.
1: So that's been utterly gripping. This was just a triumph of spectacular proportions. You walk out going, as Mum said, well, there goes Swan Lake. You know, they'll never bother with that again. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome, everybody, to episode 222 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. Our podcast, Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin joining you once again to discuss sportsmen behaving badly. We have a fabulous new book, or Corrie does, I've Got a Cracker Recipe. I've been to see Top Gun. I can't wait to tell Corrie about that. She refused to come with me the other day. And plenty more besides. Corrie, welcome. Tell us where you are.
0: Hi Caro, hi Jane, hi Potties. I'm in Ballarat and I'm here for a couple of weeks doing a bit of a
1: babysitting stint. Two weeks in Ballarat. I was going to say, well, it's good weather, but it must be freezing in Ballarat. It's
0: actually quite a mild day today. I think the top temperature is going to be nine or ten. Ballarat is one of Victoria's most beautiful regional towns. For Potties who have never been here, it is a town... or a city that completely feels all four seasons, Caro. I've never known a place in Victoria that so substantially brings to life all four seasons. So in spring, all of a sudden, almost like the first or second week of September, the bulbs are out, the roses are starting slowly to bloom. Autumn is magnificent. The trees, the European tree planting in Ballarat is exquisite. Winter, of course, no, all, all the leaves have gone, everything is bare and beautiful. And then summer, of course, it gets really hot and a bit dusty and, um, and you know, the lake often will um, dry up a bit, but winter is superb. I took the dogs for a walk last night and it was exactly the kind of winter night that you can imagine. Not a breath of wind, really cold, had the mittens and the hat on, dogs happy in the park. I agree with your comment last week. You're grumpy about parks of Melbourne being muddy. Well, the parks of Ballarat are also muddy.
1: Yes, I can imagine. Although the um, the grassmen were out at our local one early this morning. Well, Corrie, your Grandmother of the Year, we're all very impressed and we're going to look forward to hearing your tales of life in the rat looking after three, not rats, three beautiful little grandchildren and two dogs. And as I say, you're a better man than me. Thank you, Red Energy, our wonderful sponsor, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. And thank you, of course, to Prince Wine Store. We're going to be talking fortified wines Today with Miles, very wintry, good topic. And just remember, you can visit princewinestore.com.au, get on board and get the listener discounts. Vicky Mills has been in touch, Cory, via Facebook. He's really enjoying life on iview. He's um one episode down and absolutely loving it and loves our podcast, so we're happy about that. Kim Gosling also on Facebook has just finished Land, Now, Corrie, you loved that, didn't you?
0: Yeah, Loveland by Robert Lukens, Caro. And also just as a bit of a plug to my other podcast, The Book Pod, uh, we have just released an interview I did with Robert Lukens about Loveland, but also his writing career. You know, he's written dozens of novels. They're all in the bottom drawer. This is his second novel, Caro. He's such a fascinating man, but it is a great book. And Kim says, I don't give five stars very often, but I devoured this book in 24 hours. Loved it. Thanks for the recommendation. So that's great to hear.
1: Speaking of stars, I read a review of um, the new Baz Luhrmann film Elvis, which we've been talking about a lot and we'll hopefully review next week, Corrie. We should both try and get to that. I realise you're a bit busy. Four and a half stars it received from one reviewer I respect. So, um, And they're saying this could be Baz's best chance ever for an Oscar. Um, very happy morning here in... Early morning here in Melbourne, Corrie, big celebrations at Fed Square and I'm sure across Australia. Socceroos have qualified for the World Cup. Um, Five times in a row they've done this. It was not easy. It went to a penalty shootout. Um, The captain was taken off. A new goal shooter was brought in anyway. um, They're in. They've beaten Peru and then they're going to play Denmark, France and Tunisia in November in Qatar. Caro,
0: did you watch it? I've just caught it on YouTube.
1: I listened, yeah, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Oh, I
0: tell you what, Andrew Redmayne, who was the substitute goalkeeper, what a performance. What a, He jives in the goal square. He is incredible. What a
1: hero. Well, he, it was his save that um, won, us, won us the game. So um, it always seems to be right down to the wire, doesn't it? Anyway, great news. Um, not such great news. The AFL have got a lot of issues on their plate at the moment. Um, it's a big week in Melbourne, the Hall of Fame a Australian Football Hall of Fame is on this week, which is a great celebration. The clubs are all going to get together. Um, they've got a lot of issues. They're being run to the bone. They don't have enough staff, certainly not in their footy departments. AFL have cut them to the quick. Um, there's the Tasmania decision to be debated. There's um, the media rights, you know, still to come. If Gillen McLaughlin can get them done in time before he goes. Josh Friedenberg's being named as a potential contender for uh, Gillan McLaughlin's job. I don't think it will happen. Um, but, Corrie, the big story over the last week has been star players behaving really badly. Um, only the Melbourne Football Club could behave badly at a very expensive French restaurant in Greville Street, Paran, in a private room where there were vignerons giving them red wine. It ended up in a fight outside in Greville Street. Stephen May, uh, one of Melbourne's leaders, was suspended because he was drinking while on concussion um, leave and his teammate has not yet been punished for basically Jake Milksham punching Stephen May while he was concussed and punching him so hard that he, his own hand had to be operated on twice because of infections. A really ugly story. And then, of course, on Saturday, that um, but both a video and photograph were um, released in the public sphere of the biggest name, Probably in footy, biggest young name in Bailey Smith, um, holding a bag of white powder, and um, in another video, looks as though he was. Um, it looks as though he was snorting some form of white powder. He's come clean. He'll, he'll be punished by the AFL this week. It's um, not a good week for the image of the AFL.
0: Well, it's not at all, Carol. Men behaving badly, and um, and also to add to this, I gather that crowds are down across across the code.
1: They are. I don't think that that's the reason. I think the crowds are down for many reasons, and one of which, and we've spoken about it a lot, and so has my mum, about her MCC issues. But all the venues have made it so hard to get into games. And digital ticketing, according to the AFL's research, has been the key issue that fans, football supporters, just hate. They just want to be able to walk into games still. And there are so many games with small crowds. I mean, North Melbourne are in huge amounts of strife, they are losing games by um, record amounts. The last time a team lost this often and by this much, the coach was sacked into his second season. That was at Melbourne with Mark Neald. Um, and so David Noble is really under the pump. And they've got a number one draft kick who's basically spitting the dummy and showing a lot of bad body language because he's losing and now not playing well um, in Jason Horn francis But, um, I, it, you know... AFL is still blaming COVID and habits and people not wanting to catch public transport, but the cinema I sat at on Sunday was spilling over with people. The airports are packed, or they certainly were packed, before the holiday weekend, biggest numbers since pre-COVID, and you can't get a seat at the best restaurants in town because they're all booked out for months. So footy seems to have a unique problem.
0: I think it's uh, you're absolutely right, and certainly... From, anecdotally, from what I've heard of from friends, getting to the game and organising yourselves and trying to sit together, which is a particular issue at the MCG, which we've spoken about before, has seemed to be the, the big stumbling blocks. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day who wanted to take grandchildren, Nightmare to Organise. So in the end, they don't go and they watch it at home and even audiences at home. I wonder what the television audiences, the ratings are, Carol. because... They're not, we too, bad. They're not about, too bad. They're not too bad. We were talking about this as a group recently over dinner. Who, who feels that they are watching less footy than maybe two or three, or pre-COVID? We said pre-COVID because two years ago, of course, we're in the middle of, of the lockdown. But pre-COVID, are we watching more or less? And I wonder whether people's habits kind of change. We got out of the footy rhythm in some way, even to the point of it affecting our viewing.
1: Well, and I've said that to people, but you're back at the movies and you're back out going out for dinner and you're back travelling. and they But say, that's
0: right. But maybe, maybe footy has become a, lesser, a less important thing in people's lives compared with three or four years ago.
1: I just think it, the alternative was always there. I was speaking to Richo about this, Matthew Richardson, on air yesterday, and he said, "Yeah, but there was—you still could watch footy on TV. I mean, you couldn't travel, you couldn't go out to dinner, and you couldn't go to the movies. Well, you could watch stuff on, you know, Netflix, I guess. But with footy, you were actually able to watch it. So I think that was maybe the difference. But getting back to the, look, the Melbourne footballers—they they obviously." They talked a lot about their brilliant culture after they won the flag, their new president, Kate Roffey, who we love and who we're so impressed with the job she's done. I mean, you and I loved sort of getting to know her on the podcast last year before the grand final. But when you talk about your great players and their wonderful culture and something like this happens, there is a bit of um, finger-pointing privately from the other clubs. You know, um, maybe you got your comeuppance by talking your club up too much. He says that this is a one-off. He doesn't accept that... There are haves and have-nots at Melbourne and, you know, these alleged conversations about, you know, players in the twos versus players in the ones. But it was a very unfortunate story. And I've, I've said this a lot, Corrie, in the last few days, but it still astounds me that the bloke who, admittedly maybe in self-defence, punched his teammate, was not suspended by Max L- Gorn and the leadership group and Stephen May, who was being an idiot and drinking while he shouldn't have been, was. I I think the AFL will come over the top there, as they will with Bailey Smith, who, um, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but everywhere you go in Melbourne, he's on a big poster, isn't he? You know, oh we're God. usually yeah. wearing yeah, not much. Um, yeah,
0: and, and Carol, I wonder, I wonder whether this is going to be some sort of prompt for the AFL to review its drugs policy, uh, do they do they have the right uh, punishments in place? Should they be more harsh? Uh, all right, the mental health card is thrown around so frequently with this, and it's difficult sometimes. I know that, that that often mental health and drugs are completely and utterly connected. Of course, I understand that, but I wonder what your thoughts are about punishments and penalties.
1: Well, the drug code is not a punitive code. It's about the players' welfare and it's about looking after their health and um, giving the club doctors an idea about what's going on behind the scenes at their footy club. Clubs are frustrated because they can't find out. They say they're the best people to deal with this. I would argue against that. I mean, Jeff Kennett, I can't believe his attitude. He was head of Beyond Blue for all those years and he's saying a player should be suspended for two years for using illicit substances. Now, I know people don't like illicit substances, um, illegal substances, and I would hate it if someone close to me was videoed the way Bailey Smith was. But I think you need to understand that this is so prevalent. He's only doing damage to himself. He doesn't deserve a two-year ban. They are reviewing their illicit drugs code. They've been doing it for a few years. It got held up during COVID, like so many things. Um, The AFL are behind in a lot of areas. But um, everyone seems to have a view on this. Um, the Bulldogs coach says it needs to be reviewed. I mean, he's had a lot of players, Luke Beveridge, take time off with mental health problems. And I just wonder, the clubs say they're the best people to deal with it. But, you know, Col- Hawthorne's the last club to have a player on three strikes. That was when it was three-strike policy, not two. And that was Travis Tuck. Nope. As I say, Jeff Kennett was president at the time. He was head of Beyond Blue at the time. The clubs say they were well-resourced in player welfare and yet nobody saw Travis Tuck coming or they said they were blindsided by it. So I'm not sure the clubs are the best people to deal with this or whether all players are being as well looked after by their managers as they should be. So it's a vexed question and um, I think we're going to hear a lot more about it over the coming weeks.
0: Carol, the other thing I just quickly, while we're talking footy, I wanted to ask you about was, um, I don't know whether you caught up with Jonathan Brown, the former Brisbane champion who's now on television. He was talking on Fox footy about North Melbourne and North Melbourne, as we know, Jane and I do have a very soft spot for North Melbourne, but last weekend they were smashed by the Giants by 50 points. Their win loss record over the past two and a half seasons is just appalling, eight wins and one draw and 41 losses. (laughs) Um, Things aren't looking great for the Roos, but Jonathan Brown said um, North Melbourne is in danger of being an irrelevance. And I wonder what your thoughts were on that.
1: Well, that's exactly what's happened. I mean, it was a good effort to get 13,000 people to that game on Sunday because that was, you know, in danger of being the lowest AFL crowd ever. And the North Melbourne supporters did turn up But seriously, um, they are looking, you know, their captain's on the way out, their coaches under the pump. We know a lot of their recruiters um, quit the club or left in recent weeks. Um, They've got a new woman president, Sonia Hood, who is trying to keep it all together. They've got a CEO who's under the pump. And they've got a lot of clubs who think they're the club who should go to Tasmania. Of course, they're saying they're not going to. They're also saying that Tasmania don't want North Melbourne, but... No, no, there are big issues there, and as I said, when Mark Neild had the same record or even slightly better at Mel when he was sacked, so it's not good.
0: They offloaded a whole lot of talented older players. What was it? A couple of seasons ago.
1: Well, Brad, um, Brad Scott felt that they needed to start again and rebuild. The board didn't agree. Brad Scott left. They had to pay him out, which was a joke because the clubs, you know, in very much beholden to the AFL, and then um, and then they brought in Rhys Shaw. Um, knowing that he had a, a, a history of mental health problems, they put a place a, a plan in place to support Reese, and that failed dismally. And Reese Shaw is now mm. at the Gold Coast as a development coach and doing a great job, but he was clearly the wrong choice. So a lot of mistakes were made, but that was passed. What's happening now is that they've again seemed to have made a poor choice. A very good footy manager was David Noble. He's not working out as a coach And he's had to apologise, we read, to players for losing it after a couple of the big losses, and things are not good.
0: It's not the only sport that's in a bit of crisis, Caro, golf. So this Greg Norman, this alternative golf tournament or golf association that Greg Norman has started with the backing of the Saudi royal family, uh, they had their first tournament on the weekend. Can you believe the winner, Charles Schwartzel, Won four million US dollars,
1: and one of and <laughs> for and, winning a tournament. <laughs> and was it one of the young Aussies who um, had a shocker? Still took home four hundred thousand dollars. I mean, that's exactly
0: right, carry the the top eight
1: players. So Henry Duplessis
0: came in second with two million, um, and then there were players third and fourth, one point five mil. If you came fifth, you got nine hundred and seventy five thousand dollars. So this is just it is really interesting because this L I V golf as they call it, this new, as I said, Saudi government backed golf league. It's called sportswashing really washing, on the Corey. PGA. It's Sorry? called
1: it's called sports washing. Um it, it, it's well, a, a government it using using money and putting it into sport to promote their own government. And um I I don't approve of what Greg Norman's done. It's become more complex now and, you know, we've been talking about this for a few weeks on the podcast but I think he's tarnished his image forever. A lot of players are crossing over. Still not a huge amount of the top, top PGA players from the US. Only a couple of the big names. DeChambeau obviously was one. The PGA has hit back and banned those And Phil, those Phil players. Mickelson. Well, yes. Phil but, Mickelson. Yes, but he's getting a bit long in the tooth obviously. He 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 bagged didn't he bagged the government and the re- regime and then um, turned around and played for them. They've all lost sponsors. They've been banned <laughs> took by took the, the P- they've been banned by the PGA. But the big question now is what the majors are going to do because although they the American majors well, certainly the US Open plays under the auspices of the PGA, it's not run by the PGA. So there's two stories here: the PGA controlling golf to uh, too much of a degree to really pocketing a hell of a lot of money and the players feel that they have never really earned the money they should have from this tournament. Greg Norman is doing this and he's he's been very smart about the way he's done it, um, saying that it's his way of hitting back against the control, all-controlling PGA who doesn't reward the players, the stars of the show, the way it should. The PGA... Um, as I said, hit back and banned all these players. But the US Open, because it's about to about to start, has said we'll honour our contracts with the players, even those who've played in LIV, which is, of course, is LIV is Roman numerals, meaning 54, and there are 54 whole tournaments that are played. Um, watching it on TV the other day, it did look like any other tournament. Um, but anyway, although with not that many big players, um, so what the British Open do is going to be really interesting and, of course, what happens down the track with the US PGA and next year's Masters, whether they fall in line behind the PGA of America. So it's going to be fascinating. But I say again, whatever the PGA deserve in terms of their control, I think what the Saudi government have done and their human rights record is so poor that I think um, – I know a lot of these players missed out on a lot of money because, you know, COVID meant they couldn't earn the money they needed and some of them are just gone, we'll take the money, we'll retire and, you know, count our sadnesses all the way to the bank. But I, I feel very uncomfortable about it. I really do. And I, I'm not approving, as I said, of what Greg Norman's done. It'll be interesting to see what Royal Melbourne does. I think he's a member at Royal Melbourne still, an honorary member. It'll be interesting to see well, how we just.
0: We just... For people who haven't um, followed the story, we have to remind everybody that that the uh, the the anti-LIV tournament gang are saying no, we won't join because of the Saudi- because of Saudi's human rights record. Uh, over the weekend, Carol, I don't know whether you saw, but um, it was pointed out that 15 of the 19 hijackers involved in 9/11 were from Saudi Arabia and families actually of the victims. Some families have come out over the weekend and criticised the new golf tour, and of course there was the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, who's the, an American the small singer.
1: matter. The small matter
0: of I'm not laughing. But and but it was interesting. It was interesting. I I was really um I was really surprised over the weekend, Cara, or maybe it was last week. I was reading that Greg Norman had a crack at Jack Nicholas, who used to be, of course, the great golfing champion, who was. Uh, Greg Norman's great friend and mentor. And Jack Nicholas came out saying uh, that he, 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 he wasn't in favor of this new breakaway group. And Greg Norman's come out saying he was a hypocrite, um, that originally he did think it was a good idea and Jack must have a short memory. Uh, so they've fallen out. And then of course, weighing into it as always, Gary Player, the South, the South African player, who is a golf sortie ambassador Gary Player always seems to pop up all the time with a comment of some sort about something, but he thinks it's all terrific and this is a great way to help a country that's seen the error of its ways go from strength to strength. So, really?
1: What a load of bunkum. <laughs> On that note, Corey, I think it's time for a drink. Let's head to the cocktail cabinet brought to us by Prince Wine Store, of course, and we're going to talk about Well, we know port's come back in a big way, not for me, but for many. I'm prepared to give it a go, Miles. Fortified wines or port for a cold winter nip. So, Miles, tell us what we should be drinking for a cold winter nip in the fortified stakes.
2: Fortifieds, yeah. Australian fortifieds, the the best in the world. They really are too. They're a bit of a benchmark style um, if you look at um, sort of, you know, a lot of the competitions internationally and all that sort of stuff. Um, The Australian fortifieds are really sort of highly regarded, so um, definitely suggest these. Now, we had Campbell's in last week to show us through their full range, um, and it was just really impressive. So the the Rutherglen fortifieds have their own classification system, which is the Rutherglen Classic Grand and Rare, and so each one of these is – so the Rutherglen is the lightest, freshest, and then it slowly gets more rich – and sweet and intense, and the um, they're always blends. So the 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 parts in the blends are older as you sort of move up the scale. So they get more intense, and they get more of these what's called these rancio characteristic, these nutty, toffee sort of things get more intense as you go up up the up the ladder.
1: They sound absolutely fabulous. Not too. They're sweet. so
2: good. Very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us your favourite. So I sort of picked a couple out of them. So the the there's the Topaques, which we used to call Tokay here in Australia, but yep. we're not allowed to anymore. We we have an agreement with Europe to, to respect their wine laws. And Tokay is actually a style from Hungary. So what we've done is said, okay, we're going to call this style Topaque. And it's from Muscadel is the grapes so quite an aromatic variety. Um, and you always find Topaques have this really lovely sort of black tea and golden raisin sort of thing going on. Nice and sweet, but they're the, probably the fresher style. And the Rutherglen, I really like that Rutherglen Topake. It's light, it's fresh, it's bright. So it's not, I mean, it's still sweet, but it's not super sweet. So that was my sort of pick for those sort of lighter styles. Okay, the Rutherglen Topake. Topaque, yep, from uh-huh. Campbell's. And then the next one, the classic musket from Campbell's as well. And they're quite they're quite sweet. That's starting to get into, I think, like 200 or 150 grams per litre of sugar. Whoa, whoa.
0: <laughs> 70s and 80s, remember, Cara, they'd say, who wants a sticky?
2: Sticky? A sticky, yeah. Absolutely.
1: Well, are you introdu- I think you and um, your first husband introduced us to stickies. It was we, I came back from living in the UK for mm. a few years and when you, I'd go to your dinner parties, Corrie, and you used to have a wonderful array of stickies. Oh, Do you serve cool. stickies these days?
0: I haven't, although interestingly remember, Miles, on the weekend I was having my famous wine oh, maker yes. person. So there was a bit of discussion. Should I have actually bought a sticky to serve? Oh, but I didn't um, think about it. I
1: didn't. Oh. You're in a week too late, Miles, on this one. Oh, well. <laughs> so musket, yeah, incredibly <laughs> so, sweet. Yeah, it's so lovely. really sweet.
2: And it's got, musket's got that, um, you know, that really sort of like you're starting to get to that caramel sort of toffee sort of yes. thing going on there. Super, super sweet. And um, what's this one called? So that's the so that's the Campbells, Campbells again, again, but that's their yep. classic. So that's the next the next level up. So rather than opaque, the more sort of fresher, brighter style, the classic, a little more sweet. Now they also have the Grand and, and, and rares. The Rare. So the Grand, the Rare stuff is really amazing. So I think the Isabella is the is the opaque, and the Merchant Prince is the is the uh, musket, and they are like intensely rich. They only bottle them once a year. Um, they only bottle a certain amount, so they're very difficult to get. They're very expensive. You know, a couple hundred bucks for a, a little half bottle but they are incredible wines intensely sweet but amazing freshness too
1: and what um, about the what about under the grand category so they,
2: so they have the they have the grand underneath that so you can get those there but for my for i sort of think in that classic range is always really good and then pop up you know, if you want something really special these rare sort of bottlings they they're just there's nothing like it really on the planet like they're really benchmark and the style that we make here in australia is quite individual nobody really so everywhere around the world, they've made parts of the way that they're made are used, but not we sort of do everything to these. So they're quite a unique style. So I think popping up into that rare, if you can afford it, is <laughs> the way to go. The Isabella, and what was the other one? The Isabella one? is the topake, and the Merchant Prince is the musket.
1: Oh, I love the names, Corrie. Yeah. Very, um, it's great. Very Regency Europe. I, I didn't know we were a world leader. In yeah, this area. absolutely.
2: So, in the so, if you look back to the sort of 40s and 50s, I think 85 percent of what we produced was fortified, and sort of into the 60s that changed. Now we, it's like two percent, so we don't make as much. Miles, but wonder, what we make is
0: Miles. I wonder whether that has anything to do with our rum culture here in the early days in the 19th century when we were a convict settlement.
2: Yeah, possibly having those sort of fortified, and you know, we were we were getting those grapes ripe was pretty easy for Australia. So you know we were able to get those really sort of sweet grapes to start with. So that was probably one of those things that sort of drove it as well. Um, and that fortified productions is maybe a little bit easier in some degrees, um, you know. So tell us if we were to go out and purchase
1: a bottle of the um, the topake, the yeah. Campbell's topake. So,
2: so the topake's about twenty five dollars, I think, for a for a bottle. Uh, the musket's about thirty eight dollars for a bottle. So I mean, you can, and the nice thing about those is you can. They're already kind of oxidised, so you can open them and they'll stay fresh. You don't have to worry about... Finishing you know, them drinking. off in one yeah, night. Yeah, that's right. Because it is
1: one thing that doesn't usually get finished Correct. in the night.
2: Correct. Because you don't need much. That's right. You don't need much. You could have it instead of dessert um, if you wanted. You know, muscat on ice cream, pretty pretty awesome. <laughs> or with a cheese platter is pretty good. Or cheese. Too. Yeah, fantastic.
1: Oh, that's really fascinating. And is there, Are you a port drinker? Do you...?
2: I love Port. I'm a huge I think I'm a you've huge told fan. us this before. Yeah, actually. I do. I love these styles, and I, th- and, and I think because of the history that Australia has with them as well. Um, the one that I've sort of drunk recently is the um, Pfeiffer. Um, they're also Rutherglen. The Pfeiffer, uh, well, we can't call it Vintage Port. We can't call it Port anymore because it has to come from Port, yep. so we call them Vintage Fortifieds, but it's the, I think it's called the, the Christopher from Gen Pfeiffer, and it's their Vintage Fortified, and it's $33 a bottle. And it's fantastic. And it's so it's red-based varietals. So the traditional Portuguese varietals that we see from port. There you then go. And fortified. So that's more that rather than that sort of really oxidised style, this is that really like lovely red fruit and sweet port sort of style. Fantastic. Awesome.
1: There you go, Corey. There's something to get you through two chilly weeks in Ballarat.
0: Uh, yeah, I think I'll be, uh, although I can't come to my favourite Prince wine store like I did last week, Miles. That's right. And Carol Miles carried my box to the car.
1: Oh, gee, that's service. That's, that's what re- we do there. That's that's really, is really. There no,
0: is there no end to their service? No,
1: that's right. That's how it goes. I look forward to visiting very soon. Thank you, Miles. Absolutely. Thank you. So just remember, visit Prince Wine Store, www.princewinestore.com.au or their store in South Melbourne and use the promo code M-E-S-S at checkout to receive your 10% listener discount. Corrie, you're going to kick off BSF today for Red Energy and you've got a book.
0: No, well, I, I have a few books, Caro. So at the start of the program, you said I was reviewing a new book. I'm um, actually not because it hasn't come out yet. <laughs> but – um I wanted to I wanted to mention that Jane Harper of the Dry fame Jane Harper has a new book coming out at the end of September, and in fact I will be doing an event in Melbourne at a big a rather big venue actually with Jane and more on that later on but we'd love to see potties there but her new book Exiles is coming out but it, it um I, but I did there was another book I wanted to talk about which I'll go to in a couple of weeks but a, a couple of days ago Caro. On my Instagram account, Corey is Reading, I received a direct message from uh, a lady who is who is in regular contact with me about book advice and book recommendation, which is lovely. Even though we've closed the bookshop, she loves some advice. And she said that she was going on a Northern Hemisphere beach holiday break to Greece. I'll po- I'll just pop that in there. And mm. she wondered what she should take for a good holiday read. So a good beach read might be seen to be different to a good holiday read. But I just thought I, I was writing my little list to her and I thought, well, I'll actually share these with Potties because quite a few people, they might be heading up to Queensland for the school holidays. They might be going, I don't know, to the snowfields even. Maybe some of you are lucky enough to be going overseas to warmer climates. But I, um, I was listening to an interview with Leanne Moriarty on our fa- or my favourite podcast, um, fortunately with Fee and Jane. And Leanne was talking about uh, Nine Perfect Strangers and Big Little Lies, and I thought, well, weren't they two great books for under the, underneath the Banana
1: Lounge? Oh, not nine, one... Not Nine Perfect Strangers, Corrie. Oh, that's the biggest. I didn't mind Nine Perfect oh, Strangers. It was a dare.
0: I, 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 I've written down a list here, Cara, of things that I I can recall reading on holidays pretty quickly, and Nine Perfect Strangers was good on a plane. Can I tell you? I remember mm. a holiday to uh, Surface Paradise in 1993 because I remember I was pregnant with Coco and I read The Secret History by Donna Tart. Great book. Absolutely devoured it. And Another Holiday a few years ago, Anatomy of a Scandal by Sarah Vaughan. Now, can I just say if anybody has watched the uh, the series that um, went to air via, via Stan or Netflix, I can't remember which, a couple of months ago, um, don't read the book because I think the book is outstanding and much better than the television series. If you've seen the television series, you kind of know what happens. Don't worry about it. Another book that I read on a holiday years ago, Cara, was Anne Patchett's Bel Canto, which we talked about last week briefly, Mm -hmm. and um, Shirley Hazard's Transit of Venus, which I remember reading on a train from Naples to Rome. I finished it and cried my eyes out on the train. So that's Transit of Venus. And then uh, you'll hate this because it's sort of fantasy, magical world, um, but I loved this years ago. I read Dinah Gabaldon's Outlander.
1: Yeah. Is that what the show's based on?
0: Yeah, yeah. set in the Scottish islands. I love Scottish Outlander. Islands. What are
1: you talking about? Oh, really? Oh, no, I, thought
0: you, I thought you would be disapproving. It's only nine perfect um, strangers
1: I can't cop. <laughs> and the show and was worse. One year,
0: I ended up, one year I ended up bizarrely at Sanctuary Cove on a golfing holiday and I devoured Kevin Kwan's Crazy Rich Asians And then a couple of others just to throw in. When I was in the bookshop, I never read this, Caro, but there's a book called I Am Pilgrim by an author called Terry Hayes. I've read it. I loved
1: it. It's
0: such a good, everybody says a great beach read, great beach read. And then, of
1: course, the old Ken Follett. The Key to Rebecca? Or, um, oh, there was so many. Well, any
0: of them. Well, there are his standalone novels, like uh, there's a new one that came out last year called Never, which is supposed to be very good. But... Uh, I have a family member who says the Knightsbridge series, which includes Pillar of the Earth, yep. Pillars of the Earth, is a fabulous beach read. They weigh a ton, mind you, so if you put them in your beach bag, you're going to be seriously carrying weights down the beach. But those are just a few suggestions. Oh, and of course, you and I would say anything by Maggie O'Farrell,
1: and she's got, as you say, a new one coming out soon. No, I, I spent a summer, well, a bit of a, a few, a week over summer reading Pillars of the Earth. It was. Absolutely compelling. Corrie, some great recommendations. And let's hope people are going somewhere nice and warm. But if not, curl up by the fire with a nice hot glass of cocoa, cup of cocoa, and get into one of those. Corey, um, as you know, I went and saw Top Gun the other day, Maverick, the follow-up, the sequel to the film that was so successful. What was it, 25 years ago or something? It look, it really is an entertaining film. Yes,
0: and, and, and I and I'm I'm not going I'm not going to see it in protest that Kelly McGuinness isn't in it because as she said in an interview, the, the directors and the producers obviously think I'm too fat and too old.
1: Well, I know you keep saying that, but um there are older actors in it and the love interest for Tom Cruise is in fact played by at least someone who is, you know, um over forty. And um, he's, you know, he's perfectly corny and the perfect sort of foil for him in Jennifer Connelly, who's a very, very good actor. There aren't many chari- In fact, there's no one from the old film except for Val Kilmer, who we know is well, sadly on the way out himself. There's a great documentary on at the moment on one of the streaming services. Um, he returns as um, Tom, you know, Lieutenant Tom, Lieutenant Tom the Iceman. Um, look, this this movie has basically got everything. It's got the token woman pilot. Tom Cruise returns looking not much older than he did 25 years ago as Maverick. Um, as we know, Goose, his best mate who dies in the first film, is long gone. And Meg Ryan, who played Goose's wife, and this is not giving away much because you find out pretty early, has also died. But one of the main characters in this film is Goose's son, played by Miles Teller, who, of course, plays Al Ruddy in that wonderful series on Paramount Plus The Offer about the making of The Godfather. So he's obviously a big new star. This um, is basically about Maverick being called up for one last mission. He's still a captain. He's been in trouble so many times. He's a fighter pilot who's done brilliant work from Bosnia all around the middle east but he's still still on the outer ed harris his current boss gets rid of him he's taken over by john hamm a new sort of bad bad guy boss back in california where he's sent back for one last deadly mission his is basically his job is to teach and select six fighter pilots for an impossible mission and there are 12 who come in. They're the best of their age. They're aged between 25 and 35. Um, Corey, what can I say? As I said this... My,
0: so my, my my feeling about this, Caro, is the goose's son yep. is somewhere in the mix there.
1: Oh, absolutely. And he's only there, he's there all, despite the best intentions of Maverick, Pete, Tom Cruise, because he, he of course, tried to block him coming in to the Air Force early, early on um, at the request of um, his mother, Meg Ryan, who you only see in flashbacks in the film. But, um, no, look, it's um, it's got everything. I mean, it's got a lot more action sequences, flying sequences than you would have thought, which is probably why it's good. Not too many corny on-land sequences, but, boy, they are all as corny as all get out. It's got everything. The, everyone in the cinema loved it. I went with Brendan. We both thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I'm not going to say it's going to win a lot of awards, but it's certainly the special effects are unbelievable and it's just a great piece of afternoon's entertainment.
0: Caro, you can have Top Gun Maverick on your own or yours, but I am interested in your recipe this week.
1: Well, look, this is inspired and, Miss Jane, I'm going to have to type this out and email it to you because it's one that has been a very much a trial and error. And, Corrie, I know you're the queen of the winter dips and this is not necessarily a warm dip, but I had it at Joe Campion's, our wonderful friend, a few months ago, and I've tried to perfect it. It is the tuna dip. Now there is a, a shop in Sydney or a chain of shops called Pasta Pantry that my sister frequents, and they make this tuna dip, and we are all obsessed by it. And I went to Joe's for a drink a few a little while ago, and she served up Corrie the perfect tuna dip. The two secrets to it: obviously, a lovely can of Sirena tuna. The larger can is better, obviously. The hundred and eighty, whatever it is, um, in the whizzer with some Cupy Mayo. Um, I I used half a chopped red onion, finely chopped. Fair bit of Cupy Mayo, a bit more olive oil, maybe lemon olive oil, lemon juice, and and I made the first time I made it. I put in all those ingredients, doesn't sound like much. And I thought, oh, it's a bit, you know, it's, it's a bit thin. Joe throws in a hard-boiled egg, absolutely perfect. Chuck it into the whizzer as well. You have the most beautiful dip, but the other secret ingredients are fried capers, which you put on top of the dip. And not don't get the mini capers, you've got to get the big fat capers that you buy also just at the supermarket. Fry them up in a frying pan with a little bit of spray olive oil or even just dry fry them. Chuck them on top just before serving so they're still warm. Oh, my, this is the most beautiful and simple dip you can ever imagine.
0: So my my, uh, dear friend, um, Jane Scully, she had an amazing tuna dip and I cannot find the recipe anywhere, but I can usually resurrect it from my... Memory and she used to put in a couple of uh, teaspoons of brandy, Caro.
1: Oh, with tuna. Yeah, sensational. Oh, that's really interesting.
0: Then sen- sensational because it then gives you a bit of a back of the throat hit. But there, I agree with you, there's nothing better than a good tuna dip. And also, can I say, Jo, who you say, my dear friend, but for four years of the podcast, you've been calling her your slave.
1: <laughs> True. Um,
0: can I just say that Jo also does an absolute killer vitello tonnato.
1: Oh, well, that's one of her signature dishes. She's probably perfected it from the vitello tonnato. It's one of her favourite dishes too.
0: So I think we should actually do or get Jo on sometime to do uh, the vitello tonnato recipe.
1: That's actually a really good idea. I had a I had a poached chicken version of that um recently. It was absolutely delicious. I mean you do a wonderful warm spinach dip. There is a one the the famous sort of um my version is by my friend Julie Wharton, the artichoke dip with um the parmesan cheese and lemon and mayo. Absolutely delicious for winter, but that tuna one is an absolute cracker. So there you are. That was BSF for Red Energy. Thank you, Corrie, for your book recommendations. They they will be on our show notes as well, um, as will um, the tuna recipe. Corrie, you're grumpy.
0: I'm grumpy, Carol, about Melbourne's weather, but not why not why you think I might be because we've had a couple of weeks of pretty foul weather, so there's nothing to be jolly there about. But last week I was talking to a Sydney person who was in Melbourne for business, and last week in Melbourne was particularly blusty, blustery with it with the wind whipping off Bass Strait, as it often does, good yes. old Southerlies, and the weather was pretty foul. And the Sydney person with whom I was chatting books said, oh, it's so cold here in Melbourne. The weather is shocking as usual, blah, blah, blah. Now, I don't want to make light of the <laughs> terrible, terrible flood of northern New South Wales and Queensland in the past few months. I really don't want, like, that has been horrendous and thoughts and prayers still with people who can't, who just can't get any compensation yet or insurance through. But I have to say the Victoria has experienced one of the most perfect summers. We've had so much sunshine. We've had every sort of six or seven days, there was a little rain, rainstorm just to keep the garden going. We didn't experience in Melbourne heavy drought. We had very few of those hot northerly days. And Carol, our autumn was beautiful, And our autumns are often beautiful. I just don't know why Melbourne continues to get such a bad rap from interstaters, when in fact we probably have the best weather in the country.
1: Probably we do. And as you say, once it rains in New South Wales, it never stops, or Queensland. And I I don't say that in a mean way, because it's been a horrendous year for flooding up there. And I I was involved in, you know, the the start of one when when we got out of Yamba in late February. It It was really quite frightening but um, here when it rains, you know, it's going to change any minute. You know, exactly the sun's right. going to come and, out. And we,
0: we don't get all that, you know, heavy humidity that they get up north in, in, in February, January, February, March. I, I just think that I, I think people who come to Melbourne should be just a little more gracious about our weather. That's all I'm saying.
1: <laughs> Okay. That's something to be grumpy about. I should remind everyone too, um which I didn't at the end of our BSF that if you want to get in touch with Red Energy the number is 131806. Six quick questions now for Red Energy Corrie, and I'll kick us off. What has surprised you so far about the American committee hearings into the January 6th Capitol building riots?
0: Oh, Kara, are you watching this on television at all?
1: Um yes. I uh, well well I, I it, it, it I was fascinated to read this morning that um, Donald Trump's mental health had suffered a lot too since 2020.
0: Well, uh, well, some would say not surprising. But I think the most surprising thing for me, uh, particularly last week when there was the presentation from the committee, which I'll have to remind everybody does include two Republicans on that committee, The case that they are building, the very strong case that they are building against former President Donald Trump, it's become very clear, Caro, that they are trying to mount a powerful case that Trump was told by his advisers and his lawyers, even by his own family members, that these claims of election fraud were utterly false, utterly false. And yet Donald Trump continued on his merry way did not uh, did not do anything to desist from his his repeatedly lying to the country, saying the election had been stolen. He continued to pressure government officials, including his own vice president, Mike Pence, to lie about the result. He encouraged the mob led by extremists like those Proud Boys uh, to march on the Capitol building. He made no effort to halt the violence. I think they're they're forming a really important powerful case of course it's not up to um it's not up to liz cheney and her gang to lay charges that that would have to come from from um, the legal department but they are really putting forward a powerful criminal case against the former president way more powerful than i ever imagined so that's been utterly gripping and everybody should be watching it because it is history in the making Carol, getting back to Tom Cruise, I'm dying to know, what is your favourite Tom Cruise movie?
1: I'm surprised you're asking me this, given you're clearly not a fan. And, look, I'm not really either. Look, his best acting, Corrie, and I haven't done all the Jack Reaches and the Mission Impossibles, I haven't really watched many of them, but his, his best acting, I reckon, was Magnolia, a fabulous film um, that had a great cast, Julianne Moore, William H. Macy, Philip Seymour Hoffman, a, a very sad story about... Um, two cancer-ridden men working on the same sort of TV program, but a, a unusual and brilliant film. Um, his most experimental, of course, was Eyes Wide Shut, which I thought got a lot of bad PR, but I really enjoyed the Kubrick movie. But no doubt the best was Risky Business, surely. I mean, has there been a more enjoy- funnier movie experience? And that's certainly not one with Tom Cruise. I loved it.
0: I didn't mind him in Jerry Maguire, I have to say.
1: yeah yeah the, it, a bit over the top, but no, it was all right. It was a, it was an enjoyable film, you're right, but wouldn't wouldn't make my top three. Now, Corrie, June seventeen is the fiftieth anniversary of the Watergate break-in, the event that caused Nixon's downfall. What are three of its lasting legacies? Well,
0: Caro, number one, you'd have to say people realise that politicians, even presidents and prime ministers lie if they didn't realise that before. The second one, I would say is that it really encouraged the public's lack of faith in public institutions which i think probably is a legacy that now carries on you know how people say oh, i don't trust politicians or oh, i don't trust parliament well i think it, it probably all goes back to 1973 for 1975 when nixon finally or oh, 74 when he he resigned but the third one and the most interesting one for me and you i think is the rise and rise of investigative journalism caro suddenly the public, Joe Blow, had a greater understanding of the role of whistleblowers, the whole deep throat thing that surrounded all those off-the-record briefings to Washington Post journalist Bob Woodward, the celebrityism that followed Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein and their colleagues on the Washington Post who broke the story. And then, of course, you remember the amazing David Frost interviews in 1977 after Nixon had left office I, I think it just did amazing good for for journalism. It ma- it made it a vastly more interesting space, particularly for consumers, particularly for readers.
1: Yeah, that well, that was a great film, the remaking of that whole sort of David Frost Richard Nixon story. No, I I think um, one of the more extraordinary um events of our lifetime.
0: Caro. Also extraordinary, you went and saw the Australian Ballet's performance of Kunste the other night, which is actually from the Netherlands Dance Company, a piece that the new artistic director David Halberg has brought to the Australian Ballet. David Halberg, of course, had an interesting beginning to, uh, to, to take on the role after David McAllister, because of course lockdown got in the way. So we'll call him the new artistic director, even though he's been there a while. Does he have the potential to be as good as the other David? Our David McAllister. Oh. I say our because you. And I love David McAllister.
1: Yeah, we do, um, and he does. Um, this is this was just a triumph of spectacular proportions. I mean, I went with mum and, you know, mum didn't ever like any. After Mayna Gilgood. she said no one would ever be as good as Mayna Gilgood. But, of course, David McAllister did a great job. This bloke has come out of retirement, dancing retirement, to feature in this spectacular ballet, which just continues to surprise you. There's more than 40 dancers. As you say, it was a celebration, I think, of 60 years of the Netherlands Dance Theatre. Um, and and it was meant to tour Australia, I think, in 2020. It was put off, it was put off, it was put off. This is like a, a celebration, filmed – it was not filmed – danced in rooms with doors and windows. And dancers appear out of doors and windows. Um, it's like a three-sided – it's like a sort of an architectural facade, the staging, and it widens and narrows depending on which story you're about to see. Um, oh, it's just extraordinary, Corrie. Um, there's singing, a really moving and beautiful sort of almost choir performance, which is just so incredibly moving. There's music from Bach to Janis Joplin. Um, I, I, I can't sort of explain really what it's about, except that it's just uh, the dancing is so unusual and so spectacular. And um, they're two. it's two acts. They're basically each about an hour long. And um, this spoken word, as I say, all the way through, it is so different. Halberg, when he joins the dancers on stage, is just amazing. And wow, it, you walk out going, as Mum said, "Well, there goes Swan Lake. You know, they'll never bother with that again." It and they will. And you know, the next um, one that's about to start is Harlequinade, and later on this year we're going to Romeo and Juliet, and earlier this year there was a a very different production of Anna Karenina. This bloke is, is a genius. This, this production. Fantastic. This production. Uh, you know,
0: there, sometimes, sometimes people feel that they have to follow a narrative with dancing, Caro, and I often think that dancing can also be, particularly in its modern form, is an experience. You just immerse yourself in it well, and that you don't really have to follow a story about a prince who falls in love with a beautiful peasant girl.
1: No, look, I've always thought all of and they always do one modern, you know, doing the shows every year or two. And and there were some brilliant ones under David McAllister, but this is this is just an extraordinary performance. Corrie, what's your latest podcast tip?
0: A- your brother will put me onto this, Caro. It's called The Rest is History, and it's hosted by British historians Dominic Sandbrook and Tom Holland. They have particular special subjects of their academic study. But they open themselves up to all different, different topics. At the moment, they're doing one on the young Cleopatra, which is fascinating. But what I love about this show, thank you, Will Wilson, for putting me onto it, is that the the episodes will often they don't shy away from popular culture, and they'll often pick up on current events and look at the historic look at them in an historic context. So, for example, last week they did the history of jubilees, which was really interesting. In the lead up to the French election a couple of months ago, they did French Presidents Since World War II. There were moments of hilarity in that that episode, can I tell you, with the two hosts just pissing themselves laughing about people like Nicolas Sarkozy. It was just really funny. They they did, in the lead up to our own federal election here, they did Australian Prime Ministers. Um, At the time of Easter, they did a fascinating one on the history of crucifixion as a form of public execution. Look, these guys are great. And they—they they, because they are both so smart, you just know that the tales that they tell you are, are of course, based in research, in fact, but they tell it in a way that is just so lively and so wonderful. But they're, na- they're snapping at our heels, Caro, because they're on 192 episodes. What are we on today? 222? That's it. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're making a run for our money, can I tell you? But it's a great podcast. The rest is history.
1: And, Caro, what's They your sound a lot amazing... more highbrow than us. Sorry, a lot more highbrow
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't say that. Now, tell us about um, your amazing fact this week.
1: Well, look, you probably already knew this, Corrie. Amazing factors, stupid fact. What is it about this country? On Monday, we celebrated uh, the Queen's birthday, public holiday Monday. And I know it's not the Queen's real birthday. That's, in fact, in April. But I assume that everyone in Australia celebrated the Queen's birthday, public holiday Monday. Well, they do in Tasmania, they do in New South Wales, and they do in South Australia. Perth had a public holiday last week, last Monday. Oh! And it was called, I think it's called West Australian Day or something. And they celebrate the Queen's birthday on September 26. In Queensland... They don't even have a public holiday in June and they celebrate the Queen's birthday on October 3. How crazy is that? <laughs> I, just ca- I had no idea. I had no idea either. I was talking to a footy contact over in the West and actually someone up north yeah, on on the Queen's birthday holiday and – I said, oh, what are you doing for that? And they said, oh, it's not a public holiday here. I mean, it's just, it defies belief. What happens when it becomes the King's birthday, I do not know. And what happens when we become a republic, I do not know. But I don't think there'd be anything wrong with having uniform public holidays. Fair enough, you know, the Adelaide Cup Day is different to Melbourne Cup Day, although I think a lot of states have Melbourne Cup Day. I know we do here in Melbourne, but I do not understand why we have different days for the Queen's birthday.
0: Well, unless I'm wrong, and Miss Jane might like to Google this, but I think Charles's birthday is sort of in the middle or the end of November, which would take you very close to Christmas. Who wants a public holiday on uh, three weeks before Christmas? I don't. I'm
1: too busy doing my shopping and things. Well, we don't follow the Queen's actual birthday, so why would we bother, bother following Charles's? Yes, it's 14th why of November. Why do we bother? 14th of 14th November. 14th of November.
0: Hot on the heels after Melbourne
1: Cup Day, which is a different day every year. Well, Corey, that was a podcast for this week. Thank you to our supporters, Red Energy, 100% Australian Electricity and Gas and Prince Wine Store. Visit princewinestore.com.au and click on their Don't Shoot the Messenger page for all of Miles' recommendations and discounts. Don't forget to listen to our bonus episode, Dear Caro and Corrie. And don't forget to connect with us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to get our show notes delivered... To your inbox every week, hit the sign-up button on Facebook or in our show notes. Or send us an email and we'll subscribe you. Email feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. And what do we say, Caro? Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, Prince Wine Store
0: and the Bendigo Art Gallery, presenting Elvis direct from Graceland. Created
2: in partnership with Graceland, this Australian exclusive exhibition explores the life and style of Elvis Presley. On now until July 17, tickets from
0: bendigoartgallery.com.au.